this morning, I'd like to address you on the uh, controversial title, it has proved to be controversial apparently, of the dispensability of the pastor. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians, the fourth chapter, where we'll take as our reading the first 16 verses. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Hear now the word of God. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beseech you to walk worthily of the calling wherewith you were called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, giving diligence to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now this he ascended, what is it, but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ, till we all attain unto the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a full-grown man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we may be no longer children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men in craftiness after the wiles of error. But speaking truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth, according to the working in due measure of each several part, maketh the increase of the body into the building up of itself in love. And thus far the reading of God's word. Now I recognize that uh, the title of my sermon this morning may seem just a bit strange, especially in a church which makes such a biblical point about the necessity of church government, especially in a church that teaches the legitimacy of the office of a pastor and has a tradition of standing against Anabaptist attempts to undermine leadership and oversight within the congregation. After all, the Presbyterian Church, back to the days of the Reformation, has made just such a stand against anarchy within the church against individualism within the church, against any deprecation of authority or hierarchy within the church in the legitimate biblical name of the eldership. And so I understand that it may seem very strange to speak about the dispensability of the pastor here, but we haven't abandoned our distinctive Presbyterian tenets this morning. Our legitimate Presbyterian convictions are not being put on the shelf. No, rather, the title of this morning's sermon stems from other concerns, and 
and other considerations which I want to lay before you today. And I don't have to belabor the obvious in some maudlin way. I think most of you are aware that, that I personally have uh, some difficulty uh, with my heart. I have previously had open heart surgery to replace my aorta valve, and that now needs to be redone. And this is being scheduled uh, uh, for this coming week. Now, with this impending surgery, we do face the possibility that I might not survive that surgery. It's a dangerous surgery. That is a possibility, although I don't want you to be overly concerned. The statistics are overwhelmingly in my favor. I do expect to survive that surgery. I'm not prophesying, but anyway, the possibility is there that I might not. But even if I do, with a successful surgery, there will necessarily be a long period of recuperation. Um, eight weeks or more, the doctor tells me, and my family interprets that as eight weeks of recuperation until anything close to a normal schedule and activity will be resumed. And so, one way or another, the absence of your pastor is a foregone conclusion. I mean, that's just the datum that we have to work with now this morning. And I think at first consideration, and on the very face of it, this poses a real problem for the church. The absence of the pastor could hardly be anything but disruptive to the life and the ministry of the congregation. After all, in the first place, we've all read the pastor's yearly report, haven't we? And we're vividly aware of how many things the pastor does for the church and how full his schedule is. Uh, we've laid that before you. You know about that. And I'm certainly this morning not here to suggest that uh, any of that is somehow untrue. Your pastor is extremely busy, and there are many things that uh, he does in the line of ministry here. And you may be thinking over and above that, after all, in the second place, uh, and if I believe your personal remarks and your expressions of support and gratitude, um, we want to believe that the particular pastor that we have brings some real positive, maybe some unique strengths to the ministry of this church. And so we have, on the one hand, the fact that we know the pastor is very active in ministering here, doing many things, full schedule, and uh, many of you at least would like to believe, and I, I would like you to believe, that uh, there's something special about your pastor. So now these kinds of thoughts would easily, I think, lead us to feel, even if we wouldn't utter the words, those sorts of thoughts would easily lead us to the conclusion that, well, Pastor Bonson's simply indispensable the Covenant Community Church. It just wouldn't be Covenant Community Church without him. How could we possibly get by without him? If he's going to be absent from the ministry here, either for a couple of months or maybe permanently, just how could our little congregation survive? Should we even make the effort? After all, it just might lead us to think that there's something indispensable about the pastor or this particular pastor. And it's this unspoken um, but potential attitude which I really feel compelled from God's Word to address this morning because as flattering as the sentiments um, might seem, I really have to tell you with sobering sincerity that if such comments were true, if I personally were really indispensable to the life of Covenant Community Church, then I really will have failed you as a shepherd, and as an elder, and as a teacher. 
And if your mental outlook, if your perspective on the church here suggests in any way the necessity of my active presence among you, then I have not yet fulfilled my duty to educate you and to reform your way of thinking in a thoroughly biblical direction. You know, I'm afraid that for all of his greatness as a preacher and as a man of God, this was a conspicuous failing on the part of Charles Spurgeon. While Spurgeon lived and ministered, his congregation flourished like no other in its day. It is thought that after New Park Chapel moved into the Metropolitan Tabernacle, in that day in the late 1800s, nearly 14,000 people were converted and brought into that congregation through the preaching of Spurgeon. So mighty and eloquent a speaker was he. But you see, upon the passing of Spurgeon, history witnessed the passing of the vitality and the size and the ministry of that congregation as well. For you see, it had proven to be a program centered upon and dependent upon that one great preacher himself. And I think this is the continuing, the continuing sad story of so many large churches in our own day as well. The ministry of these churches is so much tied up with the man. In one sense, it could be called a one-man show. And that is far from the biblical point of view. And so I want to take the occasion this morning to teach and impress upon you like no other time before, the scriptural truth of the dispensability of the pastor. And I think we can most readily come to this understanding if we'll recognize three things from God's Word that I'd like to study. First of all, we need to recognize that even the apostles were dispensable. Even the apostles were dispensable. Turn to Philippians, the first chapter. To appreciate the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians, remember the historical setting out of which he wrote to the church at Philippi. Paul was in prison in Rome. Paul had accusation brought against him, which at various points in his imprisonment led him to believe he would be martyred. There are other indications, in fact, one that we're going to read in the passage we turn to, that say that at some point Paul may have been given some favorable indication. Maybe things were going to turn well for him, and he might even be able to visit the Philippian church again. History tells us that did not take place. But I want you to understand that as Paul is facing martyrdom, and they're in a prison, and he writes to the Philippian church, which is his favorite church, so there's no doubt about that. You read the New Testament, it's, it's very clear that no church supported Paul like the Philippian church. No church which was as supportive of him. Yeah, he longed for them. He loved this church. That uh, The fact remains that Paul said that he had to balance out the consideration of whether it was better for him to leave and to be with the Lord than to be there to minister to the Philippians. And so, in Philippians, the first chapter, let's look at verse 21. Well-known words of the Apostle Paul. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. But if to live in the flesh, if this shall bring fruit from my work, 
then what I shall choose I know not. But I am in a strait betwixt the two, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for it is a very far better. Yet to abide in the flesh is more needful for your sake. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide, yes, and abide with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, that your glorying may abound in Christ Jesus in me through my presence with you again. And so Paul here in verses 21 through 26 of this chapter makes it very clear that it would be advantageous to the congregation at Philippi if Paul were to remain. Look at verse 24. Yet to abide in the flesh is more needful for your sake. Paul is not engaging in some kind of false humility, some kind of facade of self-deprecation. Paul says, I understand that for your benefit I should live. It would be advantageous to you if I were to be able to come back and minister to you. For myself, my own desire would be to be with the Lord. Martyrdom is not a problem. Martyrdom would be a joy in a sense, Paul says, for you see, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain, because then I'm before the very presence of my Savior for all eternity, and the pain and the anguish and the frustration and the toil is gone, and then it's just one unceasing act of worship. And so for me, it would be gain. But for you, Paul says, I know there's an advantage. But you see, there's a difference between recognizing the advantage of having even an apostle in your midst and saying that it is indispensable. Because we need to go on and read, especially verse 27 and following. Because Paul, having said this, that his desire is to be with the Lord, but it's advantageous to the Philippians that he should live. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your state, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one soul striving for the faith of the gospel, and in nothing affrighted by the adversaries, which is for them an evident token of perdition, but of your salvation, and that from God, because to you it hath been granted in the behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer in his behalf, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. This verse 27 is crucial to understand Paul's reasoning. He says, nevertheless, whether I live or die, you must stand fast for the gospel, that whether I come and see you or whether I be absent, I may hear of your state that you stand fast in one spirit with one soul striving for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, if I come, then I want to see you stand fast for the gospel. And Paul says, but if I am absent, I want to hear that you're standing fast for the gospel. Do you know what that amounts to? That amounts to Paul's recognition and all humility that even as an apostle, even as a, a pastor and a beloved one of these people in Philippi, Paul said it makes no difference whether I'm present or not. Your life continues. Your ministry continues. Your standing fast must be the same one way or another. It should not matter whether I'm present or whether I'm absent that your life as a congregation continues and your ministry doesn't miss a beat. That's what I want you to see, my friends. That's an apostle speaking. 
You know, there are some religious groups, some Christian organizations that are so uh, convinced that the apostles are indispensable to the church that they've tried to continue the apostolic office. They have tried to continue, if not the apostolic office, the idea of the touch of one apostle to another person, to another person down through history, so that you have the vicar of Christ in the Pope's seat in Rome, because it is so important that we have an apostle. But Paul didn't believe that. Paul said, I know that it would be helpful to you if I were with you, but whether I am present or absent, your faith and your ministry must continue, undaunted. And so if the apostles were dispensable, my friends, then how much more is Dr. Bonson dispensable to this congregation? You can be very sure the apostle Paul would minister a thousand times better to you than I ever have. And yet he would write these words to you and say, whether I am present or absent, you continue. And you can and must continue. Secondly, the Bible would have us learn that not only are the apostles themselves dispensable, but there's more than one pastor in the congregation. And that's another perspective that we mustn't lose sight of. There is more than one pastor in the congregation. The idea of one man rule within the Christian church is repugnant to Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism, as you all know, stands over against the congregationalist or independent idea of church government that says that the church is nothing more but a democracy and every decision that is made is in theory, if not in actual practice, to be made by the whole body of the congregation so that you have majority rule and nothing could be more wicked, nothing could be more ruinous to the church. The Bible does not teach that the congregation governs the congregation. The Bible does not teach that the sheep are the only ones who know what they're supposed to be doing. The Bible teaches sheep need shepherds. The Bible teaches that God has given gifts to the church, and that among those gifts includes the gift of rule and education, instruction and leadership. The Bible says that we need elders. But you see, Presbyterianism doesn't simply stand over against the democratic sentiment of congregationalism. Presbyterianism equally stands over against the hierarchicalism of an Anglican approach to church government. Now, what is the difference between Anglicanism and Presbyterianism? They both agree that there's a hierarchy of rule within the church. But in the Anglican church, the hierarchy continues beyond the session beyond the elders. And that hierarchy includes what they often call a pastor for pastors, or a bishop. That is to say, the Anglican Church teaches that every congregation may have its elders, but over those elders there must be a super-elder, as it were, who will govern them. And so the hierarchy continues as the pyramid builds upward toward a particular peak, as you if you will. In Presbyterianism, we stand against the democratic sentiment of congregationalism, but we refuse to believe that any one man rules in the church at any particular point. It is contrary to our form of government to have a session made up of only one man. There must be at least two. And the reason for that is that in the New Testament, you will never read of a, of a government 
in a congregation or even over a region that does not include a multiplicity of elders. Paul does not write to the elder of a particular church. He writes to the elders and the deacons. It's always plural. We believe in the plurality of elder rule. And since we believe in the plurality of elder rule, as the hierarchy of graded courts moves up, it does not move up ever to one man ruling over other men. We move from the plurality of elders in this congregation to a plurality of elders in the presbytery to a plurality of elders in the general assembly. Because we don't believe that one man is ever to be given that kind of authority and leadership, that one man is never that indispensable. There's always a multiplicity. And so uh, look at 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4 in that regard. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at the first verse, Peter says, The elders, notice the plural, the elders therefore among you I exhort, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, who am also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Before I continue, do you notice something startling about the way Peter refers to himself? Peter is an apostle. Peter is not just an apostle, but in the Roman Catholic tradition, he's the first pope. Now that's mistaken, isn't it? And you know it's mistaken because Peter, right here in 1 Peter 5, 1, says, I exhort who am a fellow elder. When it comes to the government of the church, Peter sees himself on the same plane with the other elders. He is not a notch above them. He is not the super elder. He is not the pastor of pastors, as it were, but he is a fellow elder. He says more that's very indicting to the idea of a pastor of pastors that might be a man among men. For he goes on to say, Tend the flock of God which is among you, exercising the oversight, not of constraint, but willingly, according to the will of God, nor yet for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as lording it over the charge allotted you, but making yourselves examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall be manifested, ye shall receive the crown of glory that fadeth not away. Peter says, you who are elders, you are pastors. The word pastor means shepherd. You are shepherds of the flock. And if you do your job properly, if you pursue your ministry in the correct way, then when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory. The chief shepherd? Well, lo and behold, there is a pastor among pastors then, isn't there? There is one who rules over the other pastors or shepherds in the congregation. There is the chief shepherd, but who is it? It's not another man among men. It's the God-man, our Savior, Jesus Christ, the very head of the church. Jesus is our bishop. Jesus is our overseer as shepherds. And we don't have another man to take his place. You see, the Anglican church as badly as the Roman Catholic Church puts a man in the place of the head of the church, Jesus Christ. The Roman Catholic Church believes that there are other mediators between God and men besides the man, Jesus Christ. They have other mediators. They're sacerdotal priests to whom we must go, they say, to confess our sins and receive absolution and to find out what penance must be done to satisfy the justice of God. But there is only one priest that stands between us and God, 
And that's the Savior, Jesus Christ. And the Anglican Church makes the same mistake. They put a man in the place of Jesus Christ. We don't need a man who will be a pastor of pastors, for we have the chief shepherd. We have the supreme pastor, Jesus Christ himself, who fills that function. And so the point that I'm getting at here is that from a biblical perspective, there is never just one pastor who rules over God's people. The pastorate is, in the very nature of the case, a plurality, never a singularity. Moreover, the Bible tells us that all of these pastors who have been called to do the work of ruling in the congregation are competent to do the work of ministry. You do not become an elder in the Presbyterian Church if the Presbyterian Church is operating as it should, if it's following its biblical moorings, You do not become an elder in the Presbyterian Church unless you are competent to minister. There are very clear qualifications for office laid down in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1 to tell us the kind of man you must be, the kind of experience you must have had, the ability that you must display before you become a pastor in the congregation. And you mustn't have the idea that there is a first-class and a second-class eldership in the congregation. We fight that idea continually. I think maybe some Presbyterian pastors don't fight it enough. There is no such thing as a first-class eldership. That's when you're the pastor, quote-unquote, of the church. And then a second-class eldership, you're a ruling elder within that congregation. The Bible does not speak in that way, and for that mentality to get hold of us is only going to wreak havoc. All elders are the same in God's eyes. All elders occupy the same office. The difference between them is a division of labor and nothing more. A division of labor. I may spend more of my time in the pulpit in teaching than the other elders, but that is the only difference. As to office, as to status, as to ministry function and qualification, we are all the same. And so we have in this congregation, you see, a multiplicity of pastors. And even if one should be removed permanently, he would not prove to be indispensable because there are other pastors here genuine pastors. And you mustn't look upon the one who may be in the pulpit more often as quote-unquote the pastor. He is a pastor, never more. Now I realize that in our common American idiom, we speak of the minister of your church or the pastor of your church. Well, maybe from this day on, we can try to catch ourselves doing that and not speak that way. Maybe we ought to speak of a pastor of our church because that's really, from a biblical standpoint, what we have. And so you'll notice that the sermon title is not the dispensability of pastors, plural. Then you should bring charges against me. Then you should rise up and say, this isn't what you have taught us, Dr. Bonson, because pastors as a plurality are not dispensable. But any particular one is. Peter was dispensable. Paul was dispensable, and they were pastors just like myself, just like Doug, just like Jim. And if they're dispensable, I'm dispensable. But the pastorate is not. And it will continue, with or without any particular individual. Then the third thing that I want us to see this morning is, well, not simply that the apostles themselves were dispensable, 
and not simply that there's more than one pastor in the congregation, but then finally that the ministry of the church, the ministry of the church belongs to the entire body. And Ephesians, the fourth chapter, is the best place in the New Testament to turn to find that out. For you see, we have focused this morning on this idea of leadership and eldership and, and being a pastor over the flock. But what you have to remember is that the pastorate is not a priesthood. The pastorate is not a priesthood. We are not your priest. You know what priests do? Priests do religious work in the place of others. You see, you have these commoners out there who can't do this religious work or are not willing to do this religious work or can't do this religious work with a kind of quality and proficiency of another, and so the priest takes their place. That's why, you see, the priest goes through the hocus-pocus of the Mass and everybody sits there and idly watches. The priest, you see, is the one who goes and finally gets your sins forgiven by interceding for you to God. The priest does the religious work. But that is not biblical, and that is not what we mean by the pastorate. Pastors are not priests. I think I've said this to you before. It's a helpful contrast. I think in our modern day, it would be better for us to conceive of the pastor, not the pastor, but all the pastors, as quarterbacks, not priests. You see, we're all playing on a team. Of course, I don't mean that it's playful. I don't mean that it's trivial, as football sometimes, maybe always, is. What I mean, though, is that when you have a football team, there may be a leader, but he doesn't stand by himself. He doesn't do the game of football in the place of others. He doesn't say, okay, you all go sit on the bench and watch me play this football game. He says, no, join me. Where would a quarterback be without his front line, after all? And so it is with the pastorate. Pastors are out there calling signals to the congregation. Pastors are saying, hey, you go over here and do that. And listen, let's resolve this problem that way. And this is what we need to do next. And, and this is the direction we're going to go. But you see, the ministry, the playing of the game, if you will, is for us all. The church can no more be reduced to its officers than a flock of sheep can be reduced to its shepherds. Can you imagine what a ridiculous sight that would be? What if you had some man who owned a flock of sheep, and he was very proud of his flock of sheep, and you went to visit him, and he said, let me take you out and show you my flock. And he took you out on a hillside, and over there in the distance you saw on this one little hill three or four men sitting under a tree. And he said, that's my flock. Isn't it something? And you might say, well, but who are those men over there? Well, those are the shepherds. Well, but where's the flock? Oh, well, that's, that's the flock right there. I mean, it would be preposterous. You'd say, there's something wrong with this man. I, I must be on candid camera. This can't be true. The church is not the shepherds. The church is the flock. And you'll notice in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, that Paul says that even though God has given to the church has gifted the church. The ascended Christ has granted to his body the leadership of apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers that even in that very passage where the offices of church leadership are clearly laid out for us, in that very passage, Paul tells us in verse 7, but unto each one of us was the grace given according to the measure of the gift of Christ. The gifts of Jesus Christ when he ascended on high were not for an elite few. 
Jesus gave a gift to all of you. All of you who are members of his congregation, all of you who are part of his body, have been granted the gift of Christ according to his grace. And why is he given these gifts? Look at verse 12. After we learn that there are leaders in the congregation, 12 tells us that they lead for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ. Now, who does the work of ministry? Who builds up the body of Christ? Not the apostles, not the prophets, not the pastors, but each one who has received a gift, which gift is being perfected by the leaders Jesus has given. And so again, the quarterback image comes back. We are here to show you the way. We are here to lead you in ministering, but not to minister in your place. The ministry of the Christian church is the ministry of the entire body, not just of the leaders, not just of the quarterbacks, not just of the shepherds. In verse 16, ending this paragraph from Paul says, From whom, that is from Christ, all the body is fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth according to the working in due measure of each several part, making the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. Look at that emphasis. Paul says not one corpuscle can fail to do its work. Not one joint. Not one muscle. Every part of the body must learn to function. Now that's what you have leaders for. That's why you have pastors and elders and overseers. So they can come and say, hey, you're not using your gift right. Or you're not exercising your gift at all. Or we need you over here. We need you over there. There needs to be oversight and direction. There needs to be correction and, and exhortation and, and comfort and commendation and all those things. But you see, they don't exist for themselves any more than an auto mechanic exists for himself. Auto mechanics exist for the sake of smooth running engines. And so the pastors don't exist for the sake of the pastorate. They exist to make the engine run well. So that every part, pardon the mixed metaphor, of the body now, every part of the body may function properly. Have you ever been in the situation that I have sometimes, a feeling like, you know, everything's just going fine in your body. You're not feeling bad at all, except for one little ache in your back, let's say. That's all, just one. You might say, you know, if we were to do a statistical analysis, 98% of my body's functioning great. It's only this 2% here. But you know, if you have a particular kind of 2% problem in your back, you're going to be laid up and not able to do anything. And you better remember, that's what the Christian congregation is going to suffer if you don't do your part. Your ministry is crucial. Christ did not gift you by his grace with an ability to serve the body of Christ so that you might sit back and let others do all the work. You need to minister. You need to find your role and your part. You need to function properly. You might say, well, but 98% of the congregation is doing their job. You don't need me. Wrong. From whom all the body fitly framed and knit together through that which every joint supplieth according to the working and due measure of each several part makes the increase of the body unto the building up of itself in love. And so do you see, my friends, that from a biblical standpoint, we have to confess 
that the pastor is dispensable. Even the apostles were dispensable. And there's more than one pastor in any congregation, in any organization of the church. And in the end, those pastors don't exist for themselves. They exist to lead you in the ministry which belongs to the body of Christ. So the ministry of Covenant Community Church is not, and it would be blasphemous to think that it is, Greg Bonson. The ministry of Covenant Community Church is no one individual because this is a congregation of Jesus Christ, and each of you have gifts, and we have other pastors here. Now, I'd like to believe with Paul that if I continue with you or I'm restored to you quickly, it will be to your advantage. I hope that's true. But I know that whether I am present or absent, you will continue to stand in the faith and to be ministered to and to function as ministers within the body of Christ. And so what should be expected of you in my absence? I'm going to suggest five things in closing. Five things that you're going to really make me unhappy if you don't remember to do while I'm gone. First of all, consistent attendance. I don't want a single one of you to sit at home on Saturday saying, well, maybe we'll sleep in tomorrow because we have this guest preacher coming. Don't you dare do that. And I hope if you do that everyone who is here and sees your absence will call you and really make you feel guilty about it. Don't you dare fail to come to church just because the pastor is not here. Consistent attendance. And it's not just at church. It's at all the functions of the body. I'd like you to see consistent attendance at prayer meeting while I'm laid up. And consistent attendance at Bible study while I'm laid up. And consistent attendance at supper and saying in all the various functions of our church. That's the first thing that's expected of you because this ministry is yours. Secondly, the full use of the chairman program running on its own without any time off. The evangelism program continues without missing a beat, continues to call on people. And when visitors are here, the hospitality program follows them up just as surely as usual. And when there's a need within the congregation, if someone has a baby or gets sick or there's a funeral or what have you, then we know the service chairman and those who are helping in that ministry are going to continue just as usual. You don't need Dr. Bonson here to remind you of that. In fact, the the more that chairmanship program runs without reminders from me, the more successful it is. That shows that we really do understand that the ministry belongs to the body. Thirdly, a willingness to call upon the elders for your needs. And I must plead with you in this regard because I know uh, that in the case of many of you, you may think, well, I've got a problem, but I'll just wait until Pastor Bonson's finally well. Then I'll call on him. Don't you dare do that. There is no need to do that, and it reflects, I think, a mistaken and, a, and a, a damaging attitude for yourself if you think that. The elders of this congregation, and I don't say this just because they're my friends, I say this because it's biblical. The elders of this congregation can meet your needs. They are competent men. They may not be paid full-time in the way that I am to do that. So yes, it's going to be a little bit tougher for them to fit it into their schedule of study and work and other things, but call on them. And call on them early, not late, because I'd like you all to do that even when I'm around. 
it disturbs me if you're having marital problems that you let that go on for two or three months and then finally you call me and then I find out this thing's been brewing and brewing and brewing and now it's a lot worse okay so if you're having some kind of spiritual doubt or difficulty if you're not getting along with somebody maybe to whom you're married or not if you're having any kind of Christian need you call on the elders of this church and your needs will be met I expect that so does God fourthly look after each other as a family looks after each other because we are the family of God we're the household of faith the Bible says and what that means is make it your point to look around on Sunday and see who's absent and give them a call and find out why are they depressed are they hurting are they sick are they in need is their car broken down you make a point of finding out don't sit down and say well I'm sure somebody will find out why that person wasn't here you find out why they weren't here look after each other with encouragement and concern because you see a lot of what I do on Sundays and following on people is that and if you all joined me in doing it my job would be a lot easier so now that I'm not here to do it you do it contact each other be in prayer for each other come to prayer meeting and find out each other's needs practice hospitality live like a family and then fifthly what is expected of you while I'm gone a non-critical spirit now, this is the one that you probably figure, well you don't need to tell us that pastor oh yes I do because you're sinners you're not yet glorified and you haven't mastered the sanctification that is conscious of how Satan will use circumstances to create discontent within you and so you may come to church some Sunday and maybe something doesn't go off just exactly as, as smoothly as we would like it does normally. And you might say, eh, well, what are those guys doing? Or, you know, no one talked to me after church today. Yeah, I get, you know, when the pastor's gone, there you have it. No one talks to me, see? No, you need to go to church with a non-critical spirit. I grant that having eight different preachers over eight weeks is, not go is going to give you a lot of fruit salad. That's right. You're going to have a lot of different things mixed together over the next two months. But that isn't so bad. Enjoy it while you have it. Then you'll get back, if, uh, if the Lord so wills, to my having series of things that carry on and on. Don't be critical about that. Don't be critical that one preacher is better than another. Go there with an attitude that is harmonious and wants to be fed and above all is self-giving go to church with the recognition that I'm going to minister to others as well as to be ministered to so will you do that five things while I'm gone no matter how long it may be consistent attendance full use of our chairmanship program a willingness to call on the elders in need looking after each other as a family and a non-critical spirit and if you'll do those sorts of things then you'll convince me that my presence really is something that benefits you because then you'll convince me that you're listening to what I'm preaching let's pray father we do thank you for the infinite wisdom that you have displayed in calling your church out of the world and organizing it and equipping it how we thank you that you have taken care of our every need and we praise you that even in this time of uh, turmoil and the possibility that our teaching elder may not be present for a while that you have made provision for the needs of this church. And we do pray you would convince us of that fact, that you would convince us from your own holy word that no individual is indispensable and that the ministry of your church will continue.
And indeed, even without the apostles, the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, that you will build it, and you will strengthen it, and you will equip it for service, and that until the day in which it is perfected as your bride and is turned over to you in holy array to live with you for all eternity. We thank you for such wisdom and such care. And we do pray that you might now stir us up to be responsible members of the body of Christ, to do those things that are expected of us, and to demonstrate that we take seriously the teaching of your word. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.